0: Hello, and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series for patients, where we talk about HIV, and today we'll talk about some of the challenges facing women and minorities related to HIV prevention and treatment, and specific ways to help these individuals have better outcomes. Today we welcome Dr. Ada Adamora, who's Professor of Medicine in our Division of Infectious Disease, Welcome, Dr. Adamora. Thank you. Throughout this series so far, we've talked about PrEP. We've talked about our ID clinic, treatment, and staying healthy. And sometimes there are greater challenges for some individuals to actually make the best choice for preventing or treating HIV. So what are some of the factors that makes one individual more vulnerable to HIV risks in the first place?
1: Well, that depends. I mean, you know, throughout much of the last century, the 20th century, a lot of epidemiology was what was called risk factor epidemiology. There was a lot of, and there still is, a lot of emphasis in epidemiology risk research on the individual factors and the individual things, the characteristics of an individual that place them at increased risk for having any given disease.
0: So with respect to HIV, what are some of those risks?
1: So some of those risks, for example, are who you have sex with, the types of sex that you have, you know, whether you have anal sex, vaginal sex, oral sex. All of those things are associated with different risk. In addition, the other major risk characteristic, though, is the environment the situation in which the person finds themselves. So if you're in a situation where a lot of people have HIV infection around you and it's untreated, then you're certainly at far, far, you're at infinitely, substantially greater risk than if you were doing having very risky behavior in a situation where no one had HIV infection. Right. Where, you know, no matter what you do, if no one around you has it, you cannot get it, or if no one that you're having sex with has it, you cannot get it. On the other hand, if you're in a situation where lots and lots and lots of people have it or most people have it, it is going to obviously be considerably easier and much more for you to get it and much more of a challenge for you not to get it. So one of the things that turns out it's important are not only individual characteristics, like, again, the type of sex you have, whether you're using condoms, et cetera, and these things are all very important, but also your environment. Are there a lot of people around you who are at risk? Also, what are your partners doing? Right, Because you might not be doing anything particularly high-risk yourself, but if your partner is, is doing something that causes it puts them at high risk, and they get HIV infection and they don't know it and you don't know it, you are vulnerable to get HIV infection. So those are some of the issues. That is the environment and what's going on in a person's environment. Right.
0: So you actually specialize in this unique challenge and barriers that confront women and minorities when it comes to HIV prevention and and treatment. So let's talk a little bit about prevention first and And what are some of these challenges for women and minorities?
1: That's an interesting question. What are some of the the unique challenges and barriers for women and minorities when it comes to HIV prevention and treatment? So we can look at the macro issues, and then we can look at the plain old medical issues. First of all, there's PrEP, there's pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV infection, is what the letters PrEP PrEP stands for. And what what that consists of right now is a medicine called Truvada, it's a combination of two medicines that are used to treat HIV infection and actually have been used for treatment of HIV infection for many years. And it's been demonstrated that those medicines, that that drug, Truvada, that combination drug, can be effective in preventing people from actually getting HIV infection when given to a person who does not have it.
0: Who doesn't have the disease to but, start with.
1: Right. Who does not have it but who is susceptible to getting it. And so it's, it's quite effective. Actually, it's especially effective for men. It's also effective for women, but it's important to take it every single day. As it turns out, the tissue levels in the vagina are not as high in the female genital tract as they are in the rectal tissue, which is how gay men typically get it, men who have sex with men. And so it's... More of a challenge for women because since the the drug levels are lower in the female genital tract, you need to get higher drug. Make sure you get higher drug levels, and you have to be very, very religious and aggressive about taking it every single day. You can't miss. No, you can't miss doses. Um, So that's that is a bit. That's a challenge. The other challenge is people knowing about it in the first place. I mean, I. Suspect that perhaps people who are listening to this podcast may know about it, since if they're listening to this podcast, perhaps they're interested in this type of thing. But my guess is that if you actually went out into the general population and asked people, did a survey to find out how many people know about this, you probably find a certain proportion of gay and bisexual and other men who have sex with men who know about it, but I bet there would be a non-trivial proportion of those people who don't know about it and a huge proportion of women who don't know about it. I, don't, I think most women actually have very little information about this. So that's another challenge, the, you know, even having the knowledge that this prevention tool exists.
0: So what suggestion do you do you make to solve the, the conundrum of, of there's a wonderful uh, drug that can prevent HIV infection, especially if used really regularly, and yet so many people don't even know that it's there?
1: Well, that, that's a difficult problem. I, I think one way is making sure that physicians know about it and actually evaluate and screen their patients um, to see if they are people for whom this drug could be useful. So that's one way, uh, continuing education of physicians. Um, Another thing, though, is that, you know, many of the people who are at risk don't necessarily go to the doctor that often and don't get regular health care which is a whole other right. problem. But but I'll tell you, But one other way of of increasing people's knowledge is the media. I think, you know, CDC spends, you know, it spends a certain amount it a certain Control. yeah, the Centers for Disease Control devotes a certain amount of attention to to making Information available to people, but I, I, you know, I don't know how effective that always is. There was a big flurry about this in the news cycle, and several years ago when the drug was approved. But you know, as you know, a Nash. news cycle is about four days, and if you miss it, that's the end of that. And
0: one of the responses, though, could be for patients to actually make sure that their physician at least talks to them about their sexual history. We teach in medical school that that physicians yes. in training should learn how to ask these questions. But I think in common practice, the vast majority of physicians don't ask patients about sex history. And even a greater proportion probably of patients don't bring the issue up. So what you're suggesting is with some degree of awareness, it would be important for the patient to say, hey, wait a minute here are some behaviors that perhaps you as a physician should know about. And, oh, by the way, there is an approach to to preventing HIV.
1: I certainly – I do agree with that. I, I do agree with that. I think – any people patients who, who yeah should definitely bring that up with their physicians i sort of hate to put the onus on patients of course i think it's you're completely right physicians do have an obligation actually to ask people about their sexual history um and yeah that's what we're teaching people in medical school but as you said it does not always happen
0: although patients typically ask us about what's my cholesterol mm-hmm. what's my how's my blood pressure uh, as a kidney person, I want them to, of course, ask, how, how are my kidneys? So you could suggest that if a person is concerned about uh, having had a risky behavior, that at least they should bring that issue to their attention of their doc. Yeah. Do some people see themselves at being low risk for getting HIV when really they're at high risk?
1: I think that's often true, actually. Certainly, there are some people who are, are at high risk and know they're at high risk. You know, they know that they're uh, injecting drugs and uh, that that they're injecting and that they don't know the HIV status of some of the people that they're sharing needles with or works with. So some people know. But I think it's it, an all-too-common scenario is that people evaluate their own personal risk as being Low, considerably lower than it actually is. Um, so, for example, you know, when we've done surveys in the community or you know even had sort of focus groups in the community it is actually very common for people to say, to agree oh hiv is a huge problem in this com- community you know, people uh, people out here have really risky behavior they're doing all of these kinds of things uh, that it, it, so they, they perceive other people as being at risk but they
0: don't perceive but themselves but they
1: don't necessarily perceive themselves as being at risk
0: you've already though talked to us about the 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 concern that you have to know what your partner May have been up to because your partner may have been uh, having risky behavior, and even if you're monogamous, you're now exposed to uh, that risk that you may or may not have known about.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So how to how to stop the disconnect then between the the individual think they're thinking that they're at low risk. Knowing that there's this drug out there that can prevent HIV, and asking the community to really enforce the idea of of at least asking the question: Should I be on prep? Hmm.
1: Well, you know, one thing that we did this doesn't directly answer your question, but one thing that we did a couple of a few years ago is that we developed a campaign. It was a radio campaign. Uh, in Eastern North Carolina, and the goal of this campaign was to inform people of the risk of having concurrent, of, of having uh, partners who had concurrent partners. That is, when you, a situation where your partner has other partners aside from you, right. and. So it was it was a fun campaign to do. Actually, it was a series of radio ads with vignettes and little uh, storyline, continuing storyline, um, and that's actually a pretty common thing. I think you know we hear about it in the in media all the time. People whose is, partners are having other partners; they could be celebrities, or but it's obviously it's pretty common in the population. The danger is though that, just as you said, um, that is a situation that actually can help spread HIV infection throughout a population more easily because people are connected by these various partners. And in addition, it is a risk for the person whose partner has other partners. So the goal of this campaign was to educate people about this and to also educate them about the dangers of it related to HIV and STDs. Now, when we, in the course of this radio campaign, we talked about the importance of condom use. Um, but we didn't talk about pre-exposure prophylaxis because at the time that we did it, that, you didn't know, exist. that didn't exist. Yeah. But where were we to do it again? Um, I definitely would, would uh, insert that in the campaign. So but, you know, that was the goal. You have one, stick to one partner at a time and make sure your partner does as well.
0: And make sure perhaps you get you, tested. And make sure you get tested
1: and make sure you use condoms.
0: If someone is sitting here listening to this podcast and knows they have a, a friend or a loved one who's engaging in a risky behavior, but not understand that they're really at risk themselves for getting or or spreading HIV, what would you suggest that friend do or say to that person?
1: Just One thing I would say, I think that their friend could gently suggest that they evaluate their activities and their situation and the consequences of it. So that, for example, if you they if the friend knows that they're, that they're this could be a little controversial, I guess because I'm going to try to break up people's partnerships and marriages. But you know, if they're if somebody has an awareness that uh, somebody's partner or husband or whatever is stepping out on them, they you know they could sort of suggest that they get HIV testing. They could. Uh, if they're comfortable about uh, talking about uh, the, the, the person's partnership, uh, suggesting that that's a risk for, for them to get HIV infection, um, as I said, to get tested, to think about using things like PrEP, um, to get tested for other STDs. I mean, I, those are some of the things they could do.
0: Right. Just at least get it tested. Yeah, would right. be useful. As you point out, though, there can be other sexually transmitted diseases in addition to HIV.
1: Right. Which... I think, you know, one thing that it also would be important for them to do, because sometimes people sort of don't want to know whether or not they have right. HIV infection. A big thing to point out would be that HIV infection today is very, very different from what it was in 1990. Um, it is still a serious disease, but it certainly is a treatable disease, and it's relatively easy to treat. you know. With you, There are one pill combinations that you can take and you can live a long and uh, successful life. It's really very different from the way it was in 1990. And that information is something that may motivate people to get tested as well, I think.
0: But an ounce of prevention is worth a exactly. pound of, of cure. Exactly. So outside of a, of a monogamous, monogamous relationship, in, in an ideal world, what are some things that a person could do uh, before engaging in uh, sexual activity with a person with another person?
1: Well, there are several things they could do, or should probably do. One of them is to know the person's HIV infection status. They should, frankly, discuss with them, you know, whether they have been tested, not just, oh, do you have HIV? Or do you think you have HIV? But have you, in fact, been tested for it, they should ask them about other things a person may be doing. Like, do you have other partners? When was the last time you had another partner? Do you intend to have other partners? What, you know, What's the status of our relationship? Do you, do you inject drugs? What other things do you do that could cause you to get HIV infection? So that's the first thing, is making sure that the person has had a recent HIV test uh, and knowing their activities, and certainly the person themselves should know their own HIV infection status. Um, if the person does have HIV infection, then the individual, the, the first person who's you know, evaluating the other person, you know, of course, we should uh, think of, of prep as an option. Finally, of course, they should use condoms. They should condom,
0: use Yeah. Safe sex practices are right. really uh, uh,
1: required. Right. And so, you know, I want to make it clear, trust is not enough. You should use condoms.
0: Dr. Adamari, you recently testified to Congress about the skyrocketing costs of one of the medications used to treat HIV. Daraprim, I believe, is the name of this. Uh, certainly, the cost of these medications can be a huge burden. What can help?
1: Well, that's sort of a multi-layered question. For individuals, UNC is great in terms of uh, providing help for patients with uh, pharmacy assistance programs so that the individual, the person themselves, the patient can get access to the medicine if they have no insurance of any type, commercial insurance or Medicaid. So their patient pharmacy assistance programs then there's, you know, the larger societal problem, which is what I assume you were really getting at. How is it that drugs can cost so much in the first place? I mean, some of these drugs, and this, and HIV is really just a bellwether situation um, in terms of the canary in the coal mine for other diseases. Because um, the price of drugs in general is, is an enormous problem for cancer and other things as well, and. I don't know that there is actually an easy fix for that other than really evaluating and changing the laws that govern drug development and drug pricing in this country. One other thing that would be a major help to people is if everyone had insurance, um, you know, <laughs> It would help our hospitals to stay open in North Carolina if patients could actually have payers for their care. Um, It would enable people to get access to medicines so that they don't spread infection to other people, so that they don't... Uh, end up getting sick and ending up in the ER. So there are a bunch of things, changing the structure of drug development and drug pricing in the nation, which takes an act of Congress, uh, or multiple probably acts of Congress, and probably the extent of the pharmaceutical industry, the the um, cooperation of the pharmaceutical industry, um, but then there's also the, the making sure that people have access to care in the form of payers for their care.
0: What special challenges do minority face with uh, treating HIV?
1: There are, you know, minorities face a bunch of challenges. One is minorities in this country um, – Particularly, uh, black people and uh, Latinos and other minorities as well, Native Americans are often disproportionately poor, and so that you know what we were just talking about, this whole insurance problem is a is is often a major problem for them. The insurance issue is a problem for, um, for many white people as well, as well, so it's obviously not just minorities. But a lot of people are the working poor, minorities and others, um, and the working poor really get shafted because they're the ones who are in the insurance gap. That's one thing. Another thing is the, the, there's still a, a, an exceptional amount of stigma that's associated with HIV infection, and then there's the discrimination that the minorities face. So sort of the double jeopardy, this double slam of racial discrimination and uh, HIV-related stigma is, is highly problematic, and it often prevents people from getting into care. So, so those are among the, pro- the big problems that, that uh, I see minorities is facing in, in terms of treatment of HIV.
0: You've talked a little bit earlier about uh, issues that women uh, face regarding treatment, especially the need to make sure if they're trying to do prophylaxis or prevention that they take uh, Truvada each and, every other, each and every day. Are there other issues that women are, are challenged with?
1: you're talking about women with HIV. So a lot of these things, a lot of the issue here is what we're talking about. A lot of the problems that we're talking about are, are what I think one would call syndemics, where you have a perfect storm of problems that come together. So that many women with HIV, although not all, many women with HIV are minorities, and they're also poor. And They face the problems associated with those things. And then there's also the gender inequity issue. Um, So, those are some of the the difficulties that people have in terms of getting to care, getting access to care, et cetera. Also, there's the the people often have problems related to child care, what to do with their children while they're getting treatment, you know, who's going to take care of their kids. Another big problem for people is here in North Carolina, we, there's HIV infection in the south, at least. Um, there is more HIV infection in the rural areas than there is in rural areas in the north. And so one obvious problem is um, transportation. I mean, we, we really don't have mass transit. People may not have working cars or reliable cars. This is not simply a problem of women, but it's a problem of poor people. But again, given this issue of syndemics, poverty and racial discrimination, all, all of these other things coming together uh, and sort of, you know, making a, having a synergistic effect, one big problem is that when people who are poor are often working in low-wage jobs where they don't have much autonomy. And they can't simply take a day off from work or a few hours from work to go to the doctor. Um, you know, lost time at work means, first of all, for many of them, lost money. And for some of them, it may mean getting fired. You know, if you're not here for whatever reason... You know, you, you can just hit the bricks. Go ahead. We'll hire somebody else. We're not giving you the time off. I actually see that not uncommonly in patients. So that's actually – can be that can be a big challenge for women, but it is not restricted to me- women. It's restri- It's poor people in general um, and people who have very little autonomy in their work.
0: So they don't really have easy access to care in the first place. Right. There's, there are societal barriers mm-hmm. that – have not been solved.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Let's talk for a moment about HIV research and women participation. What are some of the challenges that a woman may face with getting involved in in one of your studies? And and why is it so important for for women to participate?
1: The reason it's so important for women to be involved in HIV research and in clinical research in general is because, newsflash, women are not men. And so their physiology, their bodies, are different. Now, much of the time, drugs and therapies work the same way, but there can be critical situations in which they do not. I mean, for example, a number of years ago, it was noted that when people have heart attacks, the 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 clinical presentation can be quite different in women than it is in men. And so it's really, really important if if therapies are to be extended to women that the research be done in women to make sure that it's going to work in them and work as well in them. So some of the problems – but, you know, there there can be a lot of problems in terms of study participation. Among them are things that I mentioned before, and those things include um, transportation, especially if you live in a rural area. You can imagine if this is a point – a problem – for you in terms of getting your own clinical care, that this is going to be an even bigger problem in participating in research, which is sort of an altruistic venture as opposed to something, um, necessary. something that's necessary for your own care. Another problem that women often uh, have in the you know, you report is, well, what am I going to do with my child during this four-hour visit? So. Um, in our studies, we try to alleviate some of those problems by, or to mitigate some of those problems by doing things like um, paying for their transportation. In some cases, picking them up to bring them into the study, um, helping them, you know, pay, helping them pay for childcare. If the study is a very, you know, it requires a number of hours and they have to be all, there all day or be there early in the morning, paying for a hotel. Of course, they need to be compensated for their time, just as you or I or anybody else would want to. So these are all the things we do. But, you know, these things cost money. But, and it's important to do them, though, if you, don't, if you want to include people who really represent the population that you're trying to treat and generalize the results of the research to. If you really want to get people who look like that population You don't want just the most convenient people that you can find a lot of the times. Um, But as I said, these things cost money. So it's important for payers to understand this is why uh, the budgets of some of these studies uh, are higher. But they're important to do.
0: It's interesting because the National Institute of Health requires studies now, human studies. They have to include uh, both men and women. It's true for animal studies. It's true for everything. So what you're saying is true.
1: They do require that. They need to require that to, they pay for that and take that into account, uh, given its importance.
0: Dr. Adamore, thank you so much for participating in this podcast.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. And stay tuned for the next episode, where we'll talk about HIV cure research with Dr. David Margolis and with a study participant. Enjoy this series. You can subscribe to The Chair's Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much.